As you can see from our beginning slide, today we are in, we continue actually in the lessons from the divided kingdom, first and second kings. And we are this morning in first kings chapter seven, verses one through seven. But Really, this morning, though we're going through uh, First and Second Kings, our study will be found in the parallel account to this account, which is in Second Chronicles, chapter thirteen, verses one through twenty-two. And I think, for obvious reasons, we're going to focus a little more on the Second Chronicles account than on the First Kings account. It is only seven verses in First Kings. Uh, while the Second Chronicles account is 22 total verses. The title for today's lesson, hopefully you uh, were able to obtain a, a handout there. The title for today's lesson is Abijah's Reign and War. Abijah's Reign and War. By way of uh, outline, I'm going to switch the order on us this morning just a little bit. I want you guys to see here. I'm going to start with the introduction this morning, and in the introduction, I'll cover just a few things about 1 Kings chapter 15. We'll jump into our outline for 2 Chronicles after that, Abijah's reign being the first point there, Abijah's assertion being the second point, and finally, the battle, victory, and vindication for our study in 2 Chronicles this morning. Let's jump into... Our introduction, if we will, this morning. And first off, lesson frame. What, what is the lesson frame this morning? If we were to try to frame out what the major theme is running through today's lesson, it is certainly, undoubtedly, trust in God. Trust in God is a running theme that starts in chapter 13 of Second Chronicles and runs through chapter 16 of 2 Chronicles. In fact, that Hebrew form of the word trust or rely occurs five times between these three chapters, chapter 13 and 16 of 2 Chronicles. It provides also, these chapters provide both positive and negative examples of what it looks like to trust in God. And so as we study God's word this morning, I encourage you to really look through and try to glean for yourselves how this theme comes through our lesson. That is our lesson frame second gleanings. You might ask, what do you mean? What are we gleaning from? I'd like to glean by way of our introduction Two points, two major points from the First Kings chapter 15 account of our study this morning. Before we jump into these gleanings, if you don't already have your Bible open, please open your Bible to First Kings chapter 15. We'll read all seven verses together. And by the way, I'll take uh, advantage of that request and ask, go ahead and Go ahead and flip over to 2 Chronicles chapter 13 also as you're opening God's word this morning. We're going to read 1 Kings chapter 15 verses 1 through 7 and then we'll glean two major points from God's word 
of this account this morning. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. He walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him in all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Verse 6, there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. First point that I'd like to point out that we glean from this morning is Abijah's sinful past. And you might say to yourself, well, that's, a, that's an interesting point to glean this morning, Edwin, Abijah's sinful past. But I, I do it purposely. Uh, verse 3 tells us he walked in all the sins of his father, his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord, his God, it is said. Abijah walked in the sins of Rehoboam. That is his father. He is taking ownership of the kingdom, of the southern kingdom, Judah, from his father, Rehoboam. And a fair question is, what are those sins? I won't take you there right now, but in Second Chronicles chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're told of two of these major sins that Rehoboam committed and that Abijam walks in in 1 Kings chapter 15, the first of which is that he forsook the law of his God. The second is that he was unfaithful to the Lord. Forsaking in Hebrew means to depart or to leave behind unfaithful in the hebrew means to act treacherously or to transgress in essence by leaving behind god's word and his law both rehoboam and abijah were unfaithful to god and sinned against him directly we're also told that as part of his sinful path, he, his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. This phrase further underscores this sin. It literally means to be double-minded. To be unstable is what it refers to about Abijam. Lacking consistency as it pertains specifically to one's faith in this context. What are the takeaways that, that we can glean from this first point? His sinful path. Abijah's sinful path confirms the fact that 
he failed to learn from the sins of his father. Proverbs tells us that there is wisdom in learning from the mistakes of others rather than committing those same mistakes yourself. But there was no wisdom in Abijah in that sense. He failed to learn from the sins of his father, thereby repeating them. It confirms that he loved his sin more than anything, including his God. And it also confirms, and this is important to our study this morning, it also confirms that nothing in him warranted or merited God's mercy. There was nothing in Abijah because of his sinful path that would warrant any kind of mercy any kind of grace on behalf of a holy God. And yet that, as we will see in our study, is exactly what Abijah receives. Giving glory to God as only he is worthy of that glory. Jump to that second point that we glean from 1 Kings chapter 15, and that is Abijah's lamp. Verses 4 and 5 speak of this lamp. In verse 4, it says that God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem. And a fair question to ask at this point is, what, what was this lamp? What, what is meant by this lamp? Well, as we study the Second Chronicles account this morning, we will come to see that the lamp that he is referring to here is, is a great victory, a, a great battle victory that is the lamp that is referred to here primarily but in addition to that as a result of God giving Abijah this lamp there are two things we're told happen in this account in first kings the first thing that happens in verses four and five is that Abijah is able to raise up a son after him in other words, and this is one of God's gracious showings to Abijah, his bloodline continues. That's what that means. He's, he's able to raise up a son. His bloodline continues. It should not have. It didn't have to. God had every right from a justice perspective to strip him of his kingship. And yet we're told that because God gave him this lamp, his bloodline continues. The second thing that, that happens is that Abijah is able to establish Jerusalem, we're, we're told, in verse 5. And this occurs by, by gaining land, as we'll see in our second part of our study this morning, gaining land through military victory against the northern kingdom. In other words, Jerusalem is strengthened, it's fortified, because God allowed it to happen through the hand of Abijah. Why does God give or grant Abijah this lamp? The beginning of verses 4 and 5 explain that this lamp is granted to Abijah for the sake of David. Because David was righteous before the Lord. Now, quickly here, as we wind down this, this second gleaning this does not mean in any way and should not be understood as God being bound or owing anything to David. 
It is not David's righteousness that is in view when we read this in 1 Kings chapter 15. Instead, if there is any righteousness to speak of in David, if there is any good to point to, the very fact that he is described as a king after God's own heart only points to the reality that that was true in his life by mercy and grace of God. The point being that anything good we have, anything righteous we accomplish, any good recommendation, good name that we may enjoy must be understood through the grace and mercy of God and not our own strength. If I do anything good in this world, if we do anything worthy of note in this world, it is not because we are good. It is because God is merciful. It is because he strengthens us and has saved us from a vile, sinful life unto good deeds. And so it is not that God was beholden to David's righteousness. No, it is that God had granted David a righteousness by which people knew him as a man after God's own heart. And this morning, it is my hope that that would be one of our desires, that God would grant us that grace, that God would grant us that strength to be known as men and women after God's own heart. But if that is the case, and when that is the case, <clears throat> we should always, always recognize the fact that it is only through God's strength that we accomplish anything good in this earth. Well, that concludes the introduction, and it allows us to jump into the second part of our study this morning, which is found in Second Chronicles chapter 13. I'll give you guys just a few moments to flip your pages over to Second Chronicles chapter 13. And as we do, our first point here, as you can see, is Abijah's reign. Abijah's reign, and this will cover verses 1 through 2b. Read these verses with me, if you would, please, beginning in verse 1 in the 18th year. And by the way, I forgot to mention this. As, as we read these verses, take note of some of the similarities that occur uh, between the, the verses we've just read in 1 Kings and the verses we're going to read spe uh, specifically here, this first and second verse in Second Chronicles. Notice how some of the language is very, very similar. Beginning in verse 1, now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. At this point, we'll go quickly. Just a few things that I want to point out to you in this first point. Chapter 13 
of Second Chronicles is the only chapter in all of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, to synchronize the northern and the southern kingdoms. In other words, this is the only chapter that we will read in which both north and south are mentioned in the same breath. In verse 1, Abijah becomes king during the 18th year of King Jeroboam. Jeroboam has been reigning for some time now. He's, he's been through some battles. He's an experienced king at this point. And in enters Abijah in the 18th year of Jeroboam. We're told that Abijah's uh, reign is relatively short. It is a three-year reign mentioned in verse 2. And this is interesting because it implies here that God's overall rating of Abijah and his reign was one of disapproval. In the Old Testament, a king reigned, and if he reigned for a long time in God's kingdom, then that was generally viewed as approval or grace on behalf of God. But if the opposite were true, and you reigned for a little while, that was generally viewed as disapproval from God. And so a three-year reign on behalf of Abijah implies that God didn't approve overall of his kingship and therefore was stripped relatively quickly of his reign. Much can be said, finally, about this last part. I don't know if you guys caught it or not, and I don't want to spend too much time on it. I confess to you that I spent over an hour just studying this one topic just because my ADD brain catches on to something and then it doesn't let go until I get distracted. But I'm not going to spend an hour on the different names of Abijah's mother. I'm not sure if you caught it or not, but I did want to mention it to you given the fact that my effort was about an hour of study. I didn't want to just let it go. In 1 Kings, we're told what? That her name is Meekah. And she is the daughter of Abishalom. In 2 Chronicles, we're told what? Her name is Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. So now the plot thickens, right? The suspense is built. What is the answer to this? The reality is that these darn commentators had no really good answer when I was done <laughs> With about an hour's worth of study, they frustrated me to no end because they could not agree on a good answer. Uh, it, it's, it's a difficult issue. It's a difficult topic, believe it or not, the name of Abijah's mother. And who exactly was her dad and her mom? I'll give you the short of it. It is possible, maybe even likely that Meekah and Micaiah are just that difference there between names is just due to a scribal variant somewhere along the line it was written differently and that's what we that's why we got that difference there Meekah and Micaiah it is the same name but with a small variant along the way 
by a scribe. More importantly than that, though, is this. She is, most, most commentators tend to agree that she might actually be the granddaughter of Absalom, King David's son. King David had a daughter, and her name was Tamar. Tamar, it is thought, again, I'm prefacing, married Uriel of Gebeah, and therefore Maekah, or Micaiah, is daughter of Tamar and Uriel of Gebeah. So when, it is, when she is described in 1 Kings as daughter of Abishalom, it is actually just saying she comes from the bloodline of Absalom. Okay? That'll have to do in terms of satisfaction for that uh, explanation because I don't have anything else. And we have to move on to our second point anyway. But Abijah's reign, what, what are the highlights in case you're taking notes there in your handout? It is that it was a relatively short reign. And that if you look at it, if you step back and you look at it from a 20,000-foot view, the consensus is that, yes, God did not approve overall of Abijah's reign. And, and second, his, his bloodline is interesting. His bloodline is interesting. But we move on to the second point this morning, which is Abijah's assertion. Now, in light of the fact that God generally disapproves of Abijah's reign, the story before us in 2 Chronicles is fascinating. And I say that to you because Abijah is presented in a positive light here. And you can see where 1 Kings chapter 15 only has seven verses on Abijah. 2 Chronicles chapter 13 has 22 verses. And so one of the big differences that we see between the accounts is that Chronicles is three times as much as 1 Kings. The reason for that is because the, the account that we will read and study this morning has to do with a specific battle. Not the general life of Abijah, which 1 Kings deals with, but a specific battle between Abijah and Jeroboam, north and south. And in this specific instance, Scripture presents Abijah in a positive light. So generally speaking, he reigned short, a short amount of time. But in this specific instance, God uses this man and he is presented in a positive light. First subpoint in Abijah's assertion is this civil war that we have talked about and mentioned already. Look at verses 2c through 3 with me. Beginning in that last part of verse 2. Now, there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. You'll recall that 1 Kings mentions the exact same thing. Look at verse 3. Abijah began the battle with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 chosen men, while Jeroboam drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 chosen men who were valiant warriors. As we've already noted, that last part of verse 2 coincides with the first part of 1 Kings, 
to be clear, it announces war between the North and the South. Specifically, this is a civil war that occurs because although there are two kingdoms, it is one people. It is God's people that are getting ready to war against each other. And let me just mention here very quickly, the implications of this civil war should not be lost on us. Understand, please, that war, as we have seen over these last few days, if you've seen any images of what has occurred in Israel, is a horrific thing in and of itself. The greatest of warriors will tell you that. That if, if they can, they would rather walk away from war than fight a war. There's no glamour. There's no glory. It is a horrific thing. But when the same people, when families are warring against each other, when there is a civil war, it heightens even more the horrific nature of that war. This, that should be pointed out in this civil war. The, the purpose of this war, most commentators agreed, is Jeroboam's attempt at unifying the divided kingdom. You get the sense, it's not outright told to us in this account, but you get the sense that Jeroboam is the aggressor here. You get the sense that he's really pushing, particularly when we get to verse 13 and you notice who initiates the battle you really get a sense that Jeroboam is the one initiating. He is the aggressor. And as a result, it is thought that he is trying to unify the kingdoms here. That is the purpose of this civil war. But in this sense, as Jeroboam tries to unify the kingdoms, he finds himself fighting against God himself. Because it was not in God's timing yet to unify the kingdoms again into one kingdom. Verse 3 classifies the fact that both armies were made of valiant chosen warriors. And it's interesting because for both the north and the south, specific numbers are provided. You see that? 400,000 for the south and 800,000 for the north. And it was fascinating. Once again, one of these little tidbits that I just found myself going after for a long period of time. Most commentators tend to agree that the numbers, 400,000 and 800,000, were not actual numbers. They were hyperbole. Instead, what Scripture is really pointing out to you is that two-to-one ratio. The point is Jeroboam's army was much larger than Abijah's army. That's what you have to understand when we read verse 3. Not so much the 800,000 versus the 400,000, but the 2 to 1 ratio. In other words, Abijah had no business winning this war, winning this battle. He was severely outmanned, is the point that is being made in verse 3. Civil war leads to Abijah's address to Israel. Abijah's address to Israel is in verses 4 through 12. And, and as we look at this address, it breaks down nicely for us into three sections. So I won't read 4 through 12 altogether just yet. 
Before we read our opening verses here, let me just say a few things about Abijah's address. Many call this section that we're about to read Abijah's version of his Sermon on the Mount. You'll see why in just a minute. Abijah's address is composed of two main charges and one appeal. The first main charge is a legitimate kingship, verses 4 through 8a. The second main charge that he will give in his address is a legitimate worship, verses 8b through 12a. And finally, the appeal in 12b. And by the way, don't worry about jotting this down. You'll see it here in just a little bit. But let's let's jump in. Actually, I'm sorry. Let's go back here. Let's jump into it. Verse 4, beginning in verse 4, and we'll read through verse 8. Then Abijah stood on Mount Zemarim, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Listen to me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his master. And worthless men gathered about him, scoundrels who proved too strong for Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when he was young and timid and could not hold his own against them. Look at verse 8. So now you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord through the sons of David. And we'll stop there. 8a. Perched atop a mount, and this is why it's referred to as his version of the mount on the sermon, or the sermon on the mount, excuse me. He is perched atop a mount. Abijah finds himself in northern kingdom territory. He is in enemy territory as he addresses both Jeroboam and the northern kingdom. And in verse 5, he begins to address with an immediate question, which is a rhetorical question. It does not need any answer. Both Jeroboam and the northern kingdom obviously knew about God's covenant with David. It was a staple of Jewish tradition. Abijah describes God's covenant with David as a covenant of salt. And here he's likely referencing Numbers 18, 19. 18, 19. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what this says. Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. All the offerings of the holy gifts, which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you, as a perpetual allotment. Notice here, it is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and to your descendants with you. In the Old Testament, salt is associated with everlasting. It is forever. And so when Abijah says that it was a covenant of salt, the point that he is making to Jeroboam and to the northern kingdom is that the pact that God had made with David was going to last forever. And nothing would change that. The implication of the question that Abijah poses to Jeroboam is that Jeroboam is an illegitimate king 
because he's not from David's bloodline and therefore he's not part of God's rightful kingdom. The implicit becomes explicit in verses 6 and 7 when Abijah accuses Jeroboam of rising to power by way of rebellion. Now we've dealt with the way that Jeroboam came to power. In this class a, a few weeks ago, you should be familiar with that, but notice 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 26 tells us, then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, also rebelled against the king, referring to King Solomon, when God raised Jeroboam as an adversary to Solomon. In addition to that, in response to Rehoboam's foolish answer, you guys remember when Rehoboam is approached by <clears throat> Jeroboam, and Jeroboam says, look, we will gladly serve you. If, if you will just ease up on the workload, we will gladly serve you. And, and Rehoboam says to Jeroboam, give me three days, come back, and I'll give you my answer. And foolishly, Rehoboam listens to the counsel of, of who? Of his young friends instead of the elders. When Jeroboam returns, he says, I will make your life much harder, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, than what my father made your life. In, in, in reference to that occurrence, Rehoboam's foolish answer to Israel regarding lightening their workload, it says in 1 Kings 12, 19, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And what was their first act of rebellion? What was the northern kingdom's first act of rebellion against Rehoboam? When Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they made him king over all Israel. What's the point? The point that I'm making here is when it says that he is in rebellion in our study here in 2 Chronicles, he is in rebellion, Jeroboam is, re is, is in rebellion to Solomon. He is in rebellion to Rehoboam. And now he is also in rebellion to Abijah. Why? Why is Abijah making this point? Because Abijah is part of David's bloodline. Where Jeroboam, he's making the point, is not. Mine is the rightful kingship, Abijah is saying. Mine is the rightful kingship, not yours, Jeroboam. The reasoning that Abijah displays in verse 7 is an interesting reasoning. Abijah is careful not to place any blame on God for Jeroboam's rebellion. I hope you notice that. But he also conveniently omits both Solomon and Rehoboam's sin, which were the cause of this rebellion and should have been dealt with. Instead, like a master political strategist, he absolves Rehoboam from any responsibility and chalks it up to his youth and scoundrels who proved too strong for him, we're told in verse 7. This is in reference, it seems like, to his friends that, that, that were able to influence him to make life harder on everyone. Try as he may here, Abijah, to spin the narrative. This is the weakest part of Abijah's address to Jeroboam. 
because he fails to hold those that should be accountable accountable for their sins. And that has to be pointed out in our lesson. But as he does that, we jump into the second charge of Rehoboam's, excuse me, of Abijah's address. And that is legitimate worship. He's made the point in verses 4 through 8 about a legitimate kingship. I, Abijah, am the legitimate king because I come from David's bloodline. The second charge in his address is legitimate worship. Look at 8b through 12a. That last part of, beginning in that last part of uh, verse 8. Being a great multitude and having with you the golden calves which, which Jeroboam made for God's for you. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord and the sons of Aaron and the Levites and made for yourselves priests like the people of other lands? Whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams, even he may become a priest of what are no gods. <clears throat> but as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the sons of Aaron are ministering to the Lord as priests. And the Levites attend to their work. Every morning and evening, they burn to the Lord burnt offerings and fragrant incense. And the showbread is set on the clean table. The golden lampstand with its lamps is ready to light every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord, our God, but you have forsaken him. Now behold, God is with us at our head and his priests with the signal trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. He goes from legitimate kingship to legitimate worship, and the accusation here in these verses is that the north, Jeroboam and the north, are not conducting a worship that is fitting to God. The second charge concerns exactly that, the purpose of the temple and worship that is occurring in the temple. This second charge is composed of three focal points, God's nature, God's priesthood, and godly sacrifice. In that last part of verse 8, Abijah charges that the northern kingdom's worship is unfit because they aren't worshiping the true God. Instead, look at verse 8, that last part. What are they worshiping? They are worshiping golden calves is Abijah's point. The point being made by Abijah is that a God made by human hands is not God at all. It is an idol. Idolatry always ends in brokenness and ruin, and the northern kingdom is on a collision course with both brokenness and ruin. Additionally, in verse 9, Abijah charges that the northern kingdom's worship is unfit because of their false priesthood. The priests of the Lord were driven out, you recall, we studied that they were driven out of the northern kingdom and were exiled into the southern kingdom. And in their stead, the northern kingdom installed priests like those of pagan nations 
Verse 9 tells us. Finally, Abijah charges that the only worship offered at Jerusalem, excuse me, that only the worship offered at Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom, only that worship in God's temple, in God's rightful temple, is acceptable to God. Not the worship that is occurring in the north, but only the worship that is occurring in the south. He does that in verse 10 by saying that the Lord is the God of the southern kingdom and the sons of Aaron are the Lord's priests in the southern kingdom and the Levites attend to their work in the southern kingdom. You see the contrast? The the north has instituted priests that have been established by incorrect methods outside of the rules that God had established for priesthood. But, but in, the, in the south, the Levites do their work. The priests are from Aaron's bloodline. Furthermore, according to verse 11, the southern kingdom's worship is fit because their sacrifices are a fragrant incense to the Lord. And as a result, verse 12 is clear. God is with the southern kingdom. He is not with the northern kingdom. Because of this conclusion, because of the conclusion that Abijah arrives at, by way of these two charges, one, the first charge, excuse me, being that He is the legitimate king, and he alone, because he comes from David's bloodline. And the second charge, that the southern kingdom is performing legitimate worship, and they alone are performing legitimate worship. As a result of these, we get verse 12, specifically that last part of verse 12, which is the appeal. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. This, this appeal is very reminiscent. Turn over to, to 1 Kings, if you would, just very quickly. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 24. This, this appeal on behalf of Abijah is very reminiscent to the appeal that we read of in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 24 in which it says, thus says the Lord, you must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. You guys remember what was going on in chapter 12 of 1 Kings? It was was Jeroboam on the other side of this. Rehoboam was burning in anger and he returns to Jerusalem and we're told that that he gathers up 180 soldiers and is going to march toward the north to destroy Jeroboam. And then the prophet says to Rehoboam, thus says the Lord, you must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. 
But my, how the tables have turned now for Jeroboam. The appeal is now given to him. Don't do this, Jeroboam. Don't fight this war. You will not succeed. It is always a bad idea to fight against God. How many of you guys know that? I'm going to assume that we do because nobody raised their hand. But I just want to make sure that we all know it's a bad idea to fight against God. Exodus 14, 14 says, The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. All of us had that bully growing up that we thought to ourselves, that's, that's not what I'm going to go up against. That, that's just not one, and, and, and the reasons were clear, right? He or she was, was bigger, they were stronger, they were in sixth grade while I was in fifth grade. Didn't actually happen. But, you know, it, it was, it, it, there's reasons why we can sum up a battle and think, I don't want any part of it. The reason we sum up battles with God and should conclude, I don't want any part of it, is because Exodus says, he fights his own battles. And if that is not a terrifying thought, I don't know what is. It's an impossible battle to win. It's also a, a bad idea because we can only succeed with the Lord's help. That is evident and clear throughout all of Scripture. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 14, 6, it says, He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed and there was no one at war with him during those years. Why? Because the Lord had given him rest. The Lord fights his own battles and success from a human perspective, only occurs with his help. If I fight against God, I don't have his help. That is for sure. Well, this takes us to our third and final point, battle, victory, and vindication. Chapter 13 of Second Chronicles 13 through 22. Look at 13 and 14 with me. But Jeroboam had set an ambush to come from the rear so that Israel was in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. When Judah turned around, behold, they were attacked both from front and rear. First point here, Jeroboam's ambush. Sadly, he did not heed this warning. He did not listen to Abijah's words and decides to ambush the southern kingdom. He decides, more importantly, to fight against God himself. What a mistake that was. Jeroboam's ambush reveals his heart's condition. That is, that is the reality of this morning. His hard heart results in ignoring God's warning through Abijah's address. God has given Jeroboam over 
to the hardness of his heart. And there is nothing more terrifying than when God judges an individual and delivers him over to the hardness of his or her heart. That is where Jeroboam finds himself in these verses. This leads to our second subpoint, which is Abijah's prayer. They are ambushed. And read with me 14b through 15a. So they cried to the Lord. And the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised a war cry. And when the men of Judah raised the war cry, yeah, and when the men of Judah raised the war cry, then it was that God routed Jeroboam and all of Israel before Abijah and Judah. I hope you can see the compare and contrast, or the contrast really between Abijah and Jeroboam at this point. The ambush causes Abijah to cry out to the Lord, revealing what? Abijah's trust in the Lord. We're told that the trumpets blow and a war cry is, is shouted out, and this seems to be rooted and conjure images of that battle at Jericho, where that same battle cry is shouted out. Trumpets are blown. But the, but the underlying point here is that Abijah's trust is in the Lord, while Jeroboam's trust is in himself. That's the, that's the contrast between the two at this point. And that leads, finally, to Abijah's victory and vindication, 15b through 22. Then it was that God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. When the sons of Israel fled before Judah, God gave them into their hand. 17, Abijah and his people defeated them with a great slaughter so that 500,000 chosen men of Israel fell slain. Thus the sons of Israel were subdued at that time. Notice here, and the sons of Judah conquered because they trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers. Abijah pursued Jeroboam and captured from him several cities, Bethel with its villages, Jeshana with its villages, Ephron with its villages. Jeroboam did not again recover strength in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. But Abijah became powerful, and he took 14 wives to himself and became the father of 22 sons and 16 daughters. Now the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways and his words are written in the treaties of the prophet Ido. I remind you again, this is a man that reigned for a total of three years. And notice the positive light that he is presented in, in this account. Why? He's victorious. He's victorious. He cries out to the Lord. And though he is severely outnumbered, he is fighting on the right side. He is fighting on God's side in this account. And the, the, the answer to our question, why? Why is he viewed in such a positive light is found in that second part of verse 18. And the sons of Judah conquered because they trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers so the question before us this morning by way of conclusion is in whom is our trust 
in whom do we rely this morning? When things are difficult and challenging, where is our trust? Abijah's trust is contrasted by contrasted, excuse me, by Jeroboam's forsaking. Israel forsook God. God gave him away. Abijah trusted the Lord. God gave him victory. The choices before us today couldn't be any clearer as I see it. The only question is, how will we live our lives? Will we choose to trust the Lord or forsake him? The consequences are are clear in either case. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and your mercy and your goodness the strength that your word provides us, Lord, I am so thankful for. But the challenge before us this morning is an enormous challenge. As humans, I confess to you that we, we ebb and flow oftentimes, Lord. We, we, we fluctuate up and down, and, and you know this about us. You, you know us inside and, and out. But as we study your word this morning, it is my prayer that you would solidify us from the inside to the outside with your strength. That you would seal us with the certainty that Abijah displayed in this chapter of 2 Chronicles. So that we may trust in you, Lord, and not forsake you so that we may rely on you and not our own strength, Father. Help us this week and and even in the weeks coming before us, Lord. As challenges arise, as fluctuations come and go, help us, Lord, to remain steadfast in our reliance, in our trust of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.